Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, after Puerto Rico suffered an island-wide blackout last week, one organization's plan to make sure it doesn't happen again. And a visit from a cellist who's performing next week on a peninsula overlooking the ocean. Yes, right here in Brooklyn. Hi and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford. I'm back! But someone didn't get the memo, apparently. He's still in the studio. Just holding down the fort, Ashley. Just holding down the fort. Mm. Besides, it's warmer in here. But I'm glad to have you back. Well, what's going on? What's going on? So all this Cuomo stuff, have you heard? He's impersonating Cynthia Nixon? I've heard a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, the whole parolees getting their voting rights back, the paroled felons, mm -hmm. um, which some people are saying maybe is a cynical move, mm -hmm. uh, trying to see if he can get those 35,000 votes. Uh, we're not sure yet whether if those people do indeed get their voting rights back, mm -hmm. uh, if they'll be able to vote in the coming cycle. So we'll see how cynical it actually is. Um, but then there was this recent item today about the plastic bags. He wants to ban all single-use plastic bags. Well, that sounds like a good idea, right? Well, that would be a great idea because they are the bane of, <laughs> I shouldn't say the bane of my existence, but everywhere <laughs> proliferating three bags for one item when you go to the store. Um, right. But also people are saying, well, he's doing this because, you know, he's trying to move in acrobatically to the left mm -hmm. um, to mute Cynthia Nixon's candidacy. Um, but people are also saying that it might not even make a difference because this is just cosmetics because this won't actually pass a Republican-held Senate. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, there's this funny tweet um, where, where somebody wrote, um, Cuomo is now a strawberry blonde. And, and when, when he was asked about it, he said, oh, no reason. What? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, it's yeah. becoming an interesting race. It's getting really interesting. I remember when Cynthia Nixon said she was going to run, and some people were immediately dismissive, and now those people are like, hmm. At least we're getting some movement. You we're know? getting and some yeah, movement. Yeah, you know, it doesn't hurt to pull things a little bit leftward. No, no. Right? So then there was this item from the weekend. On Earth Day, clean water advocate Christopher oh. Swain took a dip in the Gowanus Canal to, well, we should have him tell us why. Yeah. I think we have him on the phone. Why did you do this, sir? Why did you jump into the Gowanus Canal? Talk to me about it. Love makes people do crazy things. <laughs> what do you love? I love the water, and I want it to be clean. Yes. Right. And, and so we were, we were, we were um, one of our researchers told us that in, in 72, I guess in the Clean Water Act, that um, the goal was to have all waterways in the country be swimmable. Um, from your right. findings, it's supposed it, to be by the mid '80s, right? By the mid '80s, is Gowanus is the Gowanus swimmable? <laughs> the Gowanus is a toxic cesspool that could easily sicken or kill a swimmer. So oh. no, there's a long way to go. So what did so you do to? The, sorry, go say ahead. Say that again. No, go ahead. Swimming in the Gowanus as a as a visceral experience is powerful. I mean, your eye level with sewage scum, coal tar residue, oil and gas sheen, trash. That's right there, enough to cause all kinds of problems in the human organism, not to mention it stinks and it looks bad. The federal standard is safe for swimming, paddling, and fishing every day. That's a navigable U.S. waterway, the Gowanus Canal. So from a federal legal standpoint, it's supposed to be clean already. The goal of my swims is to energize the cleanup, which we've done with the federal cleanup, but that's only going to address the muck on the bottom of the canal, the 10 to 20 foot deep 
layer of slop that they refer to oh, in the NYPD mayonnaise. scuba unit as the black mayonnaise, yeah, right? Oh, God, that sounds delicious. Oh, so that okay. won't help the plumbing problems. That won't help the water, right? Right. Right. So what I was saying is, okay, let's not stop short of cleaning the whole thing. Let's not just take out the muck and call it clean. And the analogy I used on Sunday was we remember some, some of us when we were young and you know, mom or dad or grandparent or somebody said, hey, you got to clean your room. Yes. So, you know, you clean part of your room and then the negotiation starts, right? Can we just call it clean? You know, I'm tired and it's mostly clean and isn't this good enough? You know, I want to do something else. And then, you know, your mom's like, no, it's not clean. <laughs> Get back in there and clean it up. So and that's how you feel about the Gowanus, which is like, yeah, let's not call it clean till it's clean. Yeah. Is that how it's written in the Superfund code that you just kind of clean it up a little bit and then say it's clean or? No, the Superfund's interesting because it's actually funded by the polluters themselves. It's not mm. tax dollars. Mm. So that's one of the areas in the, in the present climate where you're not going to see too much disruption because there's no you know, there's no, we're wasting our tax dollars cleaning up the environment type of thing. Like the, right. the polluters who contributed to it have to put up the money to clean it. The problem is the plumbing issues that result in contaminated runoff. So everything on the streets, all the dog poop, trash, asbestos, then copper powder from brake pads, all that washes in every rainstorm. And then the sewage. So that means the city and the state also have to get involved in making sure that the water that enters the canal for whatever reason is clean and what i was saying in part on sunday was how about a permanent end to the dumping of sewage into all nyc waterways doesn't it, sound like a bad no. idea it doesn't sound like a bad idea. it I sounds mean, very build, reasonable right? we built an iphone and a space shuttle like <laughs> It's in range. Right. It's totally well, in range. You're absolutely true. Chris, what I wonder, you know, I feel like there are the 2.8 million Brooklynites out there who have never swum uh, in the Gowanus Canal are going to want to hear about your experience and live vicariously through you. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience and what you did to ready yourself for this? Sure. So since it's not safe for swimming, I had to have an exposure control plan. In other words, what am I going to do to try to keep this water off of me? So that was our, go our goal, do a swim without getting wet. So that's sort of a tall order. We approached it by putting me in scuba boots and a dry suit, which kept the water off my skin, that covered me all the way up to the neck. Then I covered the rest of my exposed skin with water barrier gel, swim goggles, silicone cap, earplugs, and that left two obvious vectors to get water, my nose and my mouth. So the approach to that was to swim head up grandma breaststroke. And I don't know about your grandmothers, but my grandmothers swam head up breaststroke, I think, because they got their hair done once a week and they weren't going to put their head under. <laughs> so, so you never dunked? So, you never dunked your head? I never dunked because that would be the easiest way to get it. Now, oh my God, when I'm you're so swimming, glad you didn't dunk. water does splash, though, right? So I got water splashed in my mouth a couple of times. The protocol for that is I gargle with hydrogen peroxide, swish it around in my mouth, and spit it out to try to kill whatever bacteria, viruses, and protozoa I might have gotten. And then I still ended up getting really bad diarrhea for several hours uh, oh. Sunday night. And then I had to take then the next level of the protocols, start taking activated charcoal tablets to bind with whatever's in there. And 
see if you can stop it. So that that stopped it. Then some probiotics to like repopulate the intestine with friendly flora, right? And today, I yesterday I felt really tired. Today I'm starting to feel better. Wow, wow. We we asked, um, you know, uh, Tyrese, our producer, who got in touch with you. Um, I asked him how the phone call went and how you how, how you sounded this morning, and he said, "Well, he sounded lethargic and melancholy." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Okay, oh, well, I, we, we all we all surmise that you must be sick from your experience." I'm starting to feel better. Um, I didn't get sick in 2015, but you know the problem is that human waste is, is a, you know got all kinds of stuff in it. I mean, it's well, not. In urban legends, that live gonorrhea has been cultured from the Gowanus Canal. It really was. I mean, once you have raw sewage, you can get anything. I think that'd be oh parenthetically a hilarious conversation with the girlfriend or the boyfriend. Like, yeah. no, really, I got it from the canal. <laughs> Wait, no, where are you going? No, maybe it was the Gowanus. Yeah. I swear. It was the Gowanus. I swear. I was yeah. hot after work. Yeah. I. I was going to ask you if you saw fish in the Gowanus, but I guess the question would be, did you, did you see, did you see gonorrhea? I saw a seal, actually, a harbor seal. Oh, wow. And then we asked around, and that's the first harbor seal that anyone can remember seeing. In a, li a live harbor seal. Yeah, like just poking around, looking around. So we made it. I, With I six know. flippers. Um, I think, uh, you know, we, we could talk all day. Um, but I feel like we're going to have to cut off this conversation here, but it'd be great to get you in studio one day to talk more about your, um, your love of water. Sure, and I can do some show and tell with my gear. Oh, that'd be great. Absolutely. Thank you so much. The one so thing much. I just want to remind everybody before we go is because that's a navigable U.S. waterway, the Gowanus, it actually belongs to the people of the United States. Like, if you're listening to this, that's your canal. So, Legally speaking, nobody has any more right to pollute that than they do to come into your house and dump a bunch of trash and chemicals into your bathtub. So it's okay to feel ownership for that and want it to be clean and, and to know that standing behind you is that federal law that says it has to be. And I'll keep going until the norm is a pristine canal that everybody can swim in on a 95-degree day after work. And at that point, it won't be news and I won't be on your show anymore, but... The dream will come true, and I think it's the kind of thing that could happen. I mean, keep Brooklyn. the dream alive, Christopher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm thank, here for it. Thank you. And so thanks much. for your sacrifice. Yeah, and thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you having this conversation with us. Oh, thank you. Well, it was you know kind of a crappy swim, but the dream is, is a beautiful one. <laughs> we'll right? keep it going. Let's keep it going. All right. We will take right. care. Thanks, thanks a lot, Christopher. All right. Bye bye. Coming up, there are two blackouts in two weeks in Puerto Rico. We'll speak to someone who's trying to help fix the beleaguered island's energy woes by introducing solar-powered microgrids into the system. And then, a Brooklyn gym not everyone knows about. On stage at Kingsboro will give us a sample of an upcoming performance. Stay tuned. It's been more than half a year since Hurricanes Irma and Maria devastated Puerto Rico. In the months since, getting the power back on has been a clusterfuck. First, a nepotistic and lucrative deal was struck with a two-person contractor in Montana that built the island's power authority. After that was ended, quickly, some U.S. volunteers stepped into the void. 
FEMA and the Army Corps of Engineers got involved, plus more contractors with questionable deals. But finally, power was restored to most of the island. Until one of those contractors mucked up the works and caused two recent blackouts. One that affected a quarter of the island's homes and a second just last week that was island-wide. What to do? How about solar? Here with some possible answers for the beleaguered power grid is Walter Meyer, co-founder and executive director of the Coastal Marine Resource Center of New York with the Solar Libre Initiative. Welcome to 112BK. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm fantastic. How are you doing today? I'm grateful to be here with you. Great. So every crisis presents an opportunity, obviously. When did you decide to get into the Puerto Rico power fry? Um, I guess the story goes back to uh, after Hurricane Sandy mm -hmm. here in New York City, and it starts in Rockaway Beach, a coastal community where we have personal and professional connections. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, after Hurricane Sandy, when we saw how vast the need was, uh, we created a program uh, called Power Rockaway's Resiliency mm -hmm. uh, through our 501c3 called the Coastal Marine Resource Center. Mm -hmm. um, and that started out with um, crowdsource funding. Uh, and then the city collaborated with us with uh, a prime contract with EDC. Um, the program is simply to scale free solar for businesses in the most vulnerable ecological areas mm -hmm. and vulnerable environmental areas. In the case with Sandy, um, you know, Zone 1 of New York, the floodplain of New York, is your most vulnerable environmental area. Is Red Hook? Red Hook is one of those. Mm -hmm. And areas where you have high concentrations of affordable housing, like NYCHA and, and um, other you know, state programs, um, is where sort of the point of the arrowhead is for us on this social environmental justice initiative. Right. Um, and so uh, we identify businesses within these uh, double vulnerable communities within walking distance of each other mm -hmm. and give them free geothermal, solar, battery backup systems and wind, basically getting them 100 uh, percent grid off-grid capacity right. um, so that they become a future hub of safety in, the, in, in any future disturbances. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about um, the aftermath of Sandy on this show and uh, certain initiatives that are being put in place or that people are trying to put in place to make sure that the devastation that happened with Sandy, that we would never see that type of devastation in those areas again. How do you do that in Puerto Rico? How do you pinpoint those, ver those very vulnerable points, and how do you make sure that the contractors who are on the ground doing this work are not just saying, you know, we're reconstructing something, but also that we're putting something in its place so that that what happened before doesn't happen again. Well, the, the last thing you just said is the underpinning of resiliency, mm -hmm. which means not to bounce back, not to patch back what was there, but to bounce forward and, and in some ways be stronger in these future disturbances rather mm -hmm. than just survive. Um, and so for, for us, um, and I'm, I'm a little extreme on this view for policy, but um, I don't think we should invest in the grid. I don't mm -hmm. think we should invest in the microgrid. I think we should decentralize every single building on the island, mm -hmm. except for very few instances when there are major loads, like a hospital, that may have to share power with other buildings, hence the microgrid mm -hmm. discussion. Um, Why is that? And, and, you know, this is my opinion, not everyone in, in my group that I work with. Uh, mm -hmm. We argue about this a lot. But right. personally, um, when I go on the island, every time I see a power pole going up, 
um, it's it's centralization versus decentralization, mm -hmm. right? So every time the power pole goes up, it's maybe a dozen families that could have an off-grid battery and solar, right? Where they would not have any power bills. So if there was a social program um, that you know had a thousand-dollar month power bill, if you gave that to them for free, mm -hmm. they would reinvest that over time. So it builds the economy from the ground up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and economists talk about um, you know the movement of uh, number of transactions. Uh, in a given period, you know the the um, the, the kind of uh, the speed that money moves through right. the economy, and in those instances, you know working class tends to spend money they have faster yes. compared to investment class, which waits, mm -hmm. reinvests, and in, in kind of self you know um, aggregates. Right. Um, and so you know that the velocity of money, if if you will, can be leveraged when you take the working class um, and give. You know, free power essentially. Mm -hmm. um, I always feel that resilient energy is a human right, and we try to make mm -hmm. energy as free as possible with our nonprofit work, which right. I volunteer and do nights and weekends on. Wow. But during my day job, which is a firm called Lola, we also work on high end projects mm -hmm. um, as well as contracts with the city that help us pay the bills to do this nonprofit work. Also, I'm guessing that you're able to probably take a few more chances and, you know, what you learned from doing some of those for-profit um, projects informs what you can provide for people with these mm -hmm. nonprofit projects. So what are some of the projects that you guys have going on on the ground in Puerto Rico right now? So the challenge was to scale up, and right. we had a team with many partners. Our approach is called an ecosystem approach where we... Um, teach others how to do solar mm -hmm. and then teach them how to teach others. So it's both an education and a volunteer platform. Mm -hmm. um, then directly we also have our own volunteers doing the installations uh, who are teaching uh, local youth um, in the process of installation uh, how to do solar and then um, getting them paid positions with some oh, wow. of the green economy participating local businesses on the island. And I say green economy, that means the island is currently at about 2 to 3% of a green economy, mm -hmm. and it really should be, the majority should be coming from the sun. So what are we hearing from the ground? Like, how are people responding to the work that you're doing there? I have to mm -hmm. think that with some of the things that have gone on in the past with Whitefish and these other companies, people might be a little skeptical. People might mm -hmm. be, you know, hard to convince that this is the right way to go, like... How is that happening? How are those conversations going? Well, we've only installed 41 sites. Mm -hmm. I mean, I say only because, you know, there's 3.5 million people. Right. <laughs> right. But we've had partners who have installed uh, collectively over 100 sites altogether. Mm -hmm. um, but these are, you know, whole buildings, orphanages, uh, clinics, emergency rooms that we've taken with off-grid capacity, which right. is really important because some of these are the only places in these isolated areas. Oh, yeah. So if you talk to those individuals, you know, you'll get that experience of solar. Mm -hmm. But uh, collectively, I've noticed there's a cultural awakening towards solar on the island and towards right. decentralization. And people are really, you think, starting to wake up to the reality that that might be the best yeah. possible solution? I think so. Part of it is before the hurricane, mm -hmm. the grid had brownouts and blackouts locally, meaning city by city, uh, probably monthly to bi-weekly. After the storm, uh, as the grid has come back, there's been weekly blackouts and brownouts as right. opposed to monthly. 
um, and there's been full grid collapses about every quarter. So to me, it's not actually a story about Hurricane Maria. It just mm -hmm. put a, a spotlight on an on a overarching problem of a one-way extraction of resources on the island. Right. You know, there's a, there's a ratio that for every U.S. dollar invested on the island, there's exponentially more leaving the island. Yeah. And, you know, just like the outer boroughs of New York, mm -hmm. we need to find a ways to decolonize that relationship. Absolutely. And really think about the commonwealth mm -hmm. and the making the wealth common. Absolutely. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> making the wealth common. Come through. I see yeah. you trying to have a catchphrase. <laughs> Can I ask you, you know, because uh, one of the things that I think about then is uh, I would love to see more of that work being done here. I would like to see more solar power, wind energy, like mm -hmm. alternate forms of power being, you know, regularly not just touted, but also like those industries yeah. being used and happening right here in mm -hmm. America. Do you think that, and not that Puerto Rico obviously isn't, yeah, yeah. I mean the mainland, mm -hmm. um, but do you think that Puerto Rico could end up being a really interesting test case for how well mm -hmm. this could go? Um, you know, we felt our work in Rockaway was really a petri plate, mm -hmm. but Puerto Rico is a test case of scale, okay. right? Yeah. Um, you know, Rockaway was 120,000 people or so, mm -hmm. a do dozen different neighborhoods. Puerto Rico is 3.5, 3.4 million people with 78 different right. municipalities that mm -hmm. operate like a city-state, each of those municipalities. They right. have a history that goes back several hundred years that's built on an indigenous history that goes back a thousand years. So mm -hmm. it's really interesting continuity. Mm -hmm. Hard to compare some things other than some of these systems can scale. Right. But you need to shift gears to get there. But to understand the, understand the rate of scale, Puerto Rico is the size of Connecticut mm -hmm. and about the population of Connecticut. Right. And the reason everyone in the renewable space around the planet is rushing to Puerto Rico is that they realize it's the first time that a country has had um, a territory the size of a state. Mm -hmm. And if you can take a state off-grid or take a state to be 100% renewable, we only have 50 more to go on the mainland to wow. get a whole country. So for me, and whether it's Australia and all the different... Uh, like Son and Battery and, and all right. the Vision Battery, all the groups that donated materials to our group and others on the island, mm -hmm. they realize that this is a, a shifting of gears for renewables, right? right. It's been, there's been a lot of momentum. Um, and I, I call this hashtag Planet Puerto Rico. If we can hashtag save Puerto Rico, Puerto we can Rico. save the planet. I like the idea. I like the work you're doing. Thank you so much for being here today, Walter, and talking to me about it. Cool. Last week with the authors of the book Secret Brooklyn, one place we never discussed was Manhattan Beach, and in particular, Kingsborough Community College. It's about as far away as you could travel from here and still remain in Brooklyn. It's on the tip of a peninsula across from Sheepshead Bay. It's got its own beach and its own performing arts space with views of the ocean and a long-running program called On Stage at Kingsborough, with four more performances to go in their spring season. One of them is called Fiesta. And to tell us about it is Kingsborough's executive director, Anna Becker. Thanks for coming on the show, Anna. We're also joined by cellist Elad Cabilio. Welcome to 112BK, Elad. 
So, Anna, a lot of Brooklynites, and I'm guessing more Brooklynites than you suspect, don't know about Kingsborough College and about this beautiful <laughs> placement that you guys have. Um, why do you think that is? Can you tell me about it? Because it seems really special. Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a question that keeps me up at night often. Yeah. I, I will say I found that if you're north of Prospect Park, mm -hmm. that's very, very true. If you're south of the park, going from east to west, down and in Staten Island, you know Kingsborough, and everywhere right. you go, someone has a sister that went there or worked there, or something like that. Right. Um, so we're very well known in the southern parts and not as well known in the northern parts. And I just imagine that's because there's, Brooklyn is so many things to so many people. There's so much to do. That makes sense. Yeah. What about the just where it like it's so beautiful where you guys are. It seems like you know you wouldn't necessarily think to be perfectly honest. And I know you know a lot of people tend to be sort of down on community colleges and not understanding how much they can serve a community and also how much they can serve their students. But on top of some of those very practical services, you guys have the very wonderful extra bonus of being in a, a really beautiful place. It is truly beautiful, and sometimes I can't believe I'm working in New York City. I grew yeah. up in New York, but I go out to take a walk, and I'm looking at the ocean, and uh, one of our venues overlooks the ocean. That's where Fiesta will take place, and it's it's stunning, and it is a very well-kept secret in some ways, but in other mm -hmm. ways, we have about 18,000 people walk through our shows a year, and right. about as many students walk the campus every year, so, so they know. it's an, a very big well-kept secret. <laughs> it's like maybe they actually don't want the rest of us to, <laughs> right, know, to be exactly. perfectly honest. Alad, let me ask you, how wonderful is it to be able to perform in a space like that? And how important is location to your performances? So for me, it's, uh, it's so special because we're based in uh, Manhattan, my organization, Music Talks. Mm -hmm. And whenever we're coming to Kingsborough, and this is our fourth year, which is very exciting, whenever we're coming there, and each time with different artists, they're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> You said it's in Brooklyn. You right. didn't promise the beach. <laughs> so it, it is very, very, very special. And it's also, it's like, it opens your eyes and uh, it makes a whole difference. And we are very fortunate to perform, actually, the lighthouse quite, quite often. So we get to see it. And uh, when we get there, usually also there's enough light before uh, uh, sunset. So it's, it's so wonderful. During sound check, you're like relaxing and yeah. like you taking in and you walk outside and you take in also the smell so it's so <laughs> nice thinking like okay this is a performance in Brooklyn not that often right. you get this uh, when you go to out there to perform in Brooklyn Yes, absolutely. The smell of the sea, just to clarify yeah. that point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely, the smell of the sea. Now, can you tell me, how did you end up booking this program, Fiesta? Ah, what a great question. Um, as Elad said, he has been working with us for four seasons now, so uh, he's also brought music talks to our main stage. We did a Hanukkah concert this uh, past season, and uh, he's brought many things to our lighthouse, jazz, classical, opera. So we originally met when we had a dance company in residence that Elad was the music director for, and he played cello and blew me away, and we started talking, and he said, you know, I have this whole other company, and we went from there, but he's really so versatile, and he knows how to engage audiences. Like it. It's, yeah, it's wonderful. Elad, talk to me about the company. Talk to me about Music Talks and Fiesta. 
So Music Talk's mission is to bring new audiences to different types of music, mm -hmm. usually music that you are not exposed to. So mainly classical music, but also jazz and musical theater. And the idea is to bring the story behind the music so you right. can connect to it in a new way. So as the title of the organization Music Talks, mm -hmm. we talk about the music, so we give introductions to each piece. Mm -hmm. uh, in Fiesta, we have a very special program. I can guarantee that almost the entire audience have never heard four cellos playing together. I've never heard that. So I mean, another I reason just to telling come you to guys, I heard some cellos a couple weeks ago. I heard three different cellos, but cellos at the same time? It's never really happened to me. Yeah, cello is a wonderful instrument. Yes, I'm very, very biased. <laughs> but um, cello is, uh, is becoming more and more uh, a known and beloved instrument because mm -hmm. of its register. It's the human voice. It can give you so much. And when you put four cellos together, um, you get even more. And when you put uh, Spanish and Latin American music, you get even yeah. more. And when you add a terrific soprano, you truly get everything you could possibly want. So this is going to be the show everybody wants to see. How do people get tickets? Ah, well, they can visit onstageatkingsboro.org. They can call 718-368-5596, or they can stop by our box office, which is on the lovely campus that you've been talking about. And when's yeah. the show? It's May 1st, Tuesday, yeah. May 1st at 7 p.m., overlooking the ocean in our lighthouse space. Absolutely. And Elad, you're going to play us a song, right? Can you tell us about it? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to play a Spanish piece that was written by the famous Gaspar Casado. I'm sure yeah. everybody knows Gaspar <laughs> Casado. Don't you love Gaspar Casado? Yes, I do. But you're going to love Gaspar Casado after you hear the music. Gaspar Casado is a Spanish composer, but he's a cellist composer. So it has two sides to it. On the one hand, it's really bad for me as a cellist because he knows what I can do. Right. And he writes it for the cello. Uh, so he really understands the instrument and he was very loyal to his Spanish heritage like many Spanish composers so he captures so much in the piece so for a moment I need to be a guitar player mm -hmm. for a moment I'm a flamenco dancer mm -hmm. uh, so it makes the cello so versatile and shows everything that this instrument can offer fantastic now before the performance that's the show for today I'm so sorry We'll be back tomorrow with Black Lives Matter activist Darnell Moore and the country's first exhibition featuring the work of Latin American and Latino women, now at the Brooklyn Museum. Hope you can join us, and in the meantime, Alain is going to play us out. BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown. 
Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasag, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. 